Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Judges, Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 6 through 19 of Judges chapter 2. Uh, some of you know about a pastor named Tim Keller, pretty famous pastor uh, in our denomination and kind of internationally famous pastor. He pastors a church called Redeemer in New York City. And in the year 2001, his church had grown to about 2,800 people, which was pretty impressive because in New York City, Manhattan, which is where the church is, uh, average church attendance on a Sunday morning is 3%. So pretty low turnout for church attendance, and yet uh, at Redeemer, there were 2,800 people regularly on Sunday. And so that was in 2001. Um, you might know that there was a significant event that happened in 2001. It was called 9-11. So on September 16th, that is the first Sunday after 9-11, at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, the first Sunday after 9 11, 5,400 people show up for church. Almost twice as many as normally attended Redeemer. 5,400 people. Now, we can kind of understand that. People were, were, were grieving, they were lamenting the, the tragedy, they were mourning what had happened just a few days earlier. And maybe some of you recall that. Um, there was some concern about whether there was even going to be another attack. And so the country was kind of on edge, wondering if we were going to receive something similar to 9-11. And so here's 5,400 people uh, in church on Sunday mornings. But, but here's what happened. A few weeks later, attendance went right back to normal. And so there are certain groups, Duke University did a study of church attendance after 9-11 and found out that it actually it really made no difference at all. Church attendance spiked for just a short time and then it went back to normal. So this tells us a couple things. One, it tells us that tragedy tends to get us spiritually interested. You know, that very often happens, isn't it? I mean, when we're really going through the hard time, when we're dealing with death or crisis or suffering of some sort, that's when we tend to turn to God. But what we also see from this is that there is a tendency in all of us to wander away from God. There's a tendency in all of us to spiritual decline. It's like a magnetic force, it seems, that people are just drawn toward, the theological word would be, apostasy to just leave God behind, to forget him, and to go on to other things. I'm reading a book called How Not to Be Secular, a very interesting book because it's seeking to answer this question. The question is this, why is it that in the year 1500 it was almost inconceivable that people would not believe in God? Not that they were all Christians, I don't mean that, but just in the year 1500 to not believe in God was virtually inconceivable. 500 years later, in the year 2000, it's almost inconceivable that people would believe in God. Now, of course, in the church we believe in God. I'm talking about you know, worldwide cultural, in Western culture in particular, and that's what this book is talking about. Belief in God seems almost inconceivable to many, many people. There's just been this spiritual sliding away 
from God and his truth over the last few centuries. And that is a lot of what the book of Judges is about. So we are in this sermon series called Route 66. What we're doing is going through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, one sermon per Bible book to get a picture of the overall story of the Bible. And we have reached now the book of Judges. And so let me give you some background info as I normally do. Uh, Author of the book of Judges, we don't really know. Most scholars don't know. Some say maybe Samuel, uh, possible, but we really don't know. Um, Date when the book was written, maybe around 1000 BC. There's some uncertainty about that as well. Um, Significant events in the book of Judges, we see the story of Deborah, the story of Gideon, um, the story of Samson, one of the kind of most well-known stories in the Old Testament, and the story at the end of a Levite and his concubine, a really creepy, strange, weird story. And that's the thing about the book of Judges. There's lots of kind of weird, creepy, strange stories in it. I mean, it is one of the most interesting books in the Bible. I mean, I don't know how many people have read Judges lately. It seems to be a book that kind of gets lost in the Old Testament, but it really is a a fascinating read, would be a fascinating movie. Um, But see, these are some of the the major events in in Judges. Theme would be this, the the sin and punishment, particularly as they um, occur and reoccur in spiritual cycles. And so we'll get to that more in a little bit. But here's the context. Um, We've been going through, uh, again, the the whole Bible. We've seen the the life of Moses. We've seen Joshua. The days of Moses and Joshua are over and the, the days of Saul and David and, and, and Solomon are future, the days of uh, Israel's kingship. And so Judges takes place in between these times where there are strong leaders in Israel. It's kind of a twilight zone period in Israel's history. They really have no clear, strong leadership. And this passage that I've chosen uh, really sums up well what the whole book of Judges is about. So, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read Judges 2, starting in verse 6, read to verse 19. It says, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Haras, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the land, into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, 
The hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. God, would you please, by your spirit, open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, two things, just two things today that uh, we see in this passage from the book of Judges. And the first thing is this, this will be no surprise, having just read this passage, the people of God constantly provoke their God. It's the first thing we, we see here. So the people of God, that refers to Israel. Um, we've been hearing a lot about the nation of Israel in this sermon series. Remember, Israel began when God called Abraham and promised Abraham that uh, a people would come from him, and he promised Abraham that they would occupy a land. Well, uh, the people of Israel ended up being enslaved to Egypt, and God miraculously delivered them from Egypt and then moved them toward the promised land. And last week we heard about the conquest of the promised land from the book of Joshua. And so as we pick up in our text here today, we find that this is a time of high spiritual interest in Israel's life. I mean, things are going really well for them, spiritually speaking. So verses six through nine kind of give us a review, picking up where Joshua left off and getting us up to the current day. Uh, we see that uh, verse six, the people went, they took the inheritance of, of their land, the possession of the land as God gave them. And verse seven, key verse here, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And they were obedient to God all the days of the elders even who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And then Joshua dies and, and they bury him. And so we have this picture of Israel being in a very spiritually healthy place. You know, maybe a little bit like it was in the United States back in the 1950s and 60s. Do you know church attendance was highest at that time than any time in our nation's history? Even higher than uh, the very early centuries of, or excuse me, early decades of our uh, nation's founding. Sometimes we look back to the beginning of our nation and we think everybody was in church then. Well, that's not true. Um, in the 1950s and 60s, though, church attendance was as high as like 60% in some parts of the nation. But as we all know, that didn't last. And here we have a picture of Israel obeying God, but that didn't last either. Didn't last long. And so if you just look at verse 12, the latter part of 12, uh, uh, verse 12, the very last phrase there, it says, they provoke the Lord to anger. So that's where I'm getting my first point. They provoked the Lord to anger. Things were good, they were in good relationship with God, but they strayed and they provoked him 
to anger. They fell away. They strayed. They got bored with God. They fell into the same pattern that we have seen in history over and over again. And there's a warning to all of us that it could happen to us too. It could happen to this church. It could. I hope it doesn't. I mean, maybe one day the day's going to happen where they turn this building into an apartment complex. I mean, that's happened in many cases, you know. It's happening in downtown Muncie right now. There's a church actually that's being turned into apartments. In Europe, there's churches that are being used as shopping malls because the church has strayed away from God and they died and their buildings were empty. So what happens? How does it get that way? And I think we have some clues here in this passage for how that happens. And I see four things that led to Israel's decline and strain from their God. What leads to spiritual decline? The first thing we see is this. There's compromise in Israel. Remember, again, the conquest of the land. We heard about that last week in the book of Joshua. Israel goes and takes over the land. Takes over the land and God's command was that Israel should remove all the inhabitants of the land. Don't leave anybody surviving. Now, I know that raises questions. If you have questions about why would God do that, uh, you can listen to last week's sermon where I took up that issue. Um, How can we believe in a God that would command such a thing? Uh, Go to our website and you can find that. But the command from God was clear. Remove all the inhabitants. But did, did Israel do that? And if you look at the end of chapter 1, you'll find the answer to that. Look with me at the end of chapter 1. <clears throat> look at verse 27. This is referring to the tribes of Israel. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. Do you get the point? What the writer is telling us is that God had given a command to Israel, the tribes of Israel, and they obeyed to a certain extent, but they didn't obey to the full extent. They obeyed God to a certain place where they thought maybe it was acceptable, but then came to the conclusion that maybe we don't have to do everything that God called us to do. They compromised. It was a half-hearted obedience. I mean, who knows exactly what happened there, but you you can imagine maybe they got in there and they're thinking, uh, I don't know, maybe we can make some friends here in Canaan. Maybe some of the Canaanites will come to our church. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could please God and please the world and please the Canaanites? Wouldn't it be great if everybody liked us? And so they think, "Uh, you know, I know God said every inhabitant, but I don't know. After all, it's 1,000 B.C. Things aren't like they used to be. We live in a different time. So, you know, is that what God really said? That's exactly what Satan said to uh, Eve, right? Is that really what God said? And, you know, apparently Israel's had a hard time remembering exactly what God had commanded, And they compromised. And they gauged in a half-hearted obedience. Friends, if a husband is 75% faithful to his wife, are we impressed with that? Oh, he's mostly faithful. But no, we're not impressed with that. 75% faithful 
is not faithful. And here Israel are obeying God but with a half-hearted obedience, not all the way, reserving some judgment for themselves to do the things that they weigh the way they want to. That, that's the first thing. We're seeing this already in chapter one, and it's leading to uh, their decline. The second thing we see, neglect. Look at verse 10. We just heard about um, it, Joshua and everything that happened with him, and we heard that it was a good time for Israel under Joshua, but then verse 10 comes along and it says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, that is all the generation of Joshua died, and then there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Just one generation passes, and suddenly you have a bunch of people who don't know the Lord. Now, it's interesting, the phrase there at the end of that verse, there's two parts to it. They did not know the work that he had done for Israel, so apparently they hadn't heard about the Exodus. I think that's primarily what that's referring to, God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. But the phrase before that, they did not know the Lord. You know, the word know in the Old Testament has a very kind of intimate meaning to it. What it means is they didn't have personal relationship with God. That's what that means. That their hearts were not warm toward God. They weren't walking with God. God and his gospel were not chief in their affections. They had begun to wander away, and that ended up leading to an entire generation coming up next who didn't know anything about their gospel. And they were living exactly like the world. Now, how could that possibly happen? I have three ideas in mind about how it certainly happens today. One, this happens when pastors neglect to teach congregations the full counsel of God and get distracted into other things and make other things other than the gospel priority. That's one way this happens. Another way this happens is when Christians begin to lose any passion or interest whatsoever in sharing the gospel with friends and family and coworkers because they're afraid of being called a fanatic, they're afraid of losing friends, and so they bow their heads in shame and they don't say anything about the gospel. And the third thing that leads to this is when parents neglect to teach their children the teaching of God's word and the gospel. And when you have a nation of people that way, pastors not teaching, citizens not teaching, parents not teaching, is it any surprise that another generation comes up who does not know the Lord? This is one of our greatest responsibilities as, as a church, as a church body, is to gather around and help families raise up their children to know this Lord. I, I saw this quote recently from somebody, she said this, whoever captures kids owns the future. And the person who said that was an LGBT activist. And so, you know, th they understand. I mean, th that, that is absolutely true. And yet, the church sometimes forgets how important that is. And so I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when we went through the passage in Deuteronomy. Uh, how important that is to us, that we prepare our children for the next generation. If we neglect that, we'll have a whole next generation. It can happen in 20 years, you know? It can happen that quick. And that's what happened apparently in Israel, neglect. The third thing, idolatry. 
The third thing that led to Israel's decline was idolatry. Looking at verse 11 through 13, this has been repeated throughout this passage, but here it is. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. Verse 12, they abandoned the Lord, the God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Remember when I said that the Exodus was primary in Israel's mind? You'll see it repeated over and over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. They're constantly looking back to the deliverance from Egypt as the primary, most fundamental act of redemption. And here we're learning that they had forgotten that as well. They went after other gods, the gods of the peoples who were around them and they bowed down to them. And that's what ended up provoking the Lord to anger. Now you might look at that and say, well that's not a problem for me because I don't worship Baal. I don't have an Asherah pole up in my living room. But we tell you this a lot, and this is very important. An idol is not just a physical object that you necessarily kneel down to. Uh, An idol is not even necessarily a supernatural being that you might have in mind. An idol is whatever has prominent place in your heart. Whatever it is that, that you want more than anything to please, that is an idol. I mean, it can be your kids, it can be your spouse, it can be your church, it can be a number of things, but those things become idols for us if we will do anything to please them. That's an idol, and that's what Israel was bowing down to. I I was in Fort Worth, as I mentioned last week, just earlier this week, Monday and Tuesday, for um, a China partnership meeting. This was a group of ministry leaders and churches throughout the nation. We got together to talk about how we can assist and help the church in China, particularly because, uh, as I've been telling you, there's been an increase in persecution of our brothers and sisters there in China. Uh, In fact, the Chinese government has recently um, labeled the Christian church a national security threat. So that's, that's a new development, and uh, a lot of the pastors in China are very scared. And so I talked to one of the pastors at the China Partnership meeting. He was a guy I actually met when I was there in Chengdu, and um, he had just been on a sabbatical here in the United States, and he was flying out the very next day, and I asked him, are you looking forward to getting back to ministry? And he said, actually, no because of all the things going on, because of all the dangers and the threats that are before him. He's not looking forward to going back. But but here's what really struck me, is as the Chinese leaders were talking about the situation in China, they said, do you know what? The, the, The biggest threat to the church in China is not persecution. The Christian leaders do not consider persecution to be the biggest threat. The biggest threat is materialism because the economy in China is growing, people are getting richer and richer, and the Christian leaders are seeing that this is an idol for a lot of people in the Chinese church. It's capturing their hearts and moving them away from Christ. And if it's a problem in China, you know it's a problem here. We all have that temptation toward materialism as an idol, and this was present here for Israel, and it was beginning to leave them astray. The last thing we see is relativism. 
relativism becomes a factor that leads Israel away. Um, the, the judges, they come and they speak. We'll learn more about the judges here in a second. But in verse 17, it says the judges came to speak to the people. Look at verse 17. They did not listen to their judges, it says. The judges were calling them to obedience, but the people, they, they didn't listen. They whored after, 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 after the they turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. They didn't obey God. So why is that? Well, I think one reason why is because of a repeated phrase in Judges. We don't see it in this passage today, but it comes up a couple times, and in fact, it's the very last verse of the book. And it gives us a clue as to what is really a problem for Israel. It's this. In those days, there was no king. Again, we're in between Josh, Moses and Joshua and Saul and David, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That, friends, is relativism, where questions of moral rights and wrongs are determined by your own personal preference. I mean, we see this everywhere today. We live in a culture of fake news and alternative facts where people are making up reality as it goes. That's the world in which we live. We are bearing the fruit of decades of a relativistic view of reality in our country and in our world. And here's what a guy named D.A. Carson said about this. Here's the danger of relativism. It promises freedom because everybody's doing what they want, but it enslaves people. It refuses to acknowledge sin and evil in the way the Bible does, if everybody can do what is right in their own eyes and nothing's really wrong, and therefore it never adequately confronts sin and evil, and therefore it leaves people enslaved by sin and evil. If everyone does that which is right in their own eyes, the end is either anarchic chaos, either anarchy, or cultural cries for more laws in order to establish stability, ultimately a call for a dictator. You see, when you, when you live in a world when everybody does what is right in his own eyes, I mean, that is just unsustainable. You know, there's conflicts then between what people think is right and wrong. And when people run into people who conflict with their own vision of what's right and wrong, they get mad. And we're hearing this over and over again in our culture today, the increase in animosity, the increase in violence. I think what we're beginning to see is the beginning of a kind of an anarchy because there is no settled moral code by which we are governed and held accountable because everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. D.A. Carson says sometimes I calls people to call for a dictator. I mean, bring in anybody to fix this. And isn't it interesting that eventually Israel will turn away from God and call for a king because they'll be in the same situation. Come on, bring in somebody here to fix the situation. So these are the four things that have led Israel away. Compromise, neglect, idolatry, relativism. And friends, these things still press upon us today. They press upon you. We sang it at the very first song of this service, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Do you ever feel that? A heart prone to wander, prone to buy into these things? Friends, you and I have to be proactive, intentional, aggressive in 
stirring up the flames of our faith or it will die out. You have got to use the means of grace at your disposal. Do not presume that you won't slide away like the Israelites did and like so many others have. I used this uh, example in our life group a little while ago, but you know, Mary and I make a campfire sometimes out in our backyard, and I'm always surprised as I get the, the kindling and the wood together, and I light it, and I go away for like a minute, and I come back, and the fire is dying. And i got to pick up something, and I'm just fanning that flames over and over again, and I see the flames start to fan up, but I put it down, and it just starts to die down. And sometimes our fervor, our passion, our affections for God can do the very same thing. You've got to fan them. You have to. That is through prayer, through communion with God personally, through, through reading his word, by being present in worship, by sitting under the word preached, by being with other Christians, by letting people into your life to encourage you, by being careful about what you watch, what you listen to, what you allow into your mind. You have to be intentional about that to keep from strain. So the people constantly provoke their God. But here's the good news, the second point. That was a long first point, but here's, here's the second point. God constantly pursues his people. This, this is the good news. God constantly pursues his people, and he does this through two ways. First of all, he pursues through discipline. This is how God often pursues us, by disciplining us. Now, when we go through hard times, suffering and pain in our lives, sometimes we don't know exactly why it's happening. You know, Job is a perfect example of that. Job suffered, but we're not really told exactly why he suffered. Job never found out exactly why he suffered. But one thing we do know about Job is that it wasn't because there was any wrongdoing in Job. God wasn't paying him back, but we, we don't really know exactly why he was suffering. But there are other times when we go through pain and difficulties because of God's discipline. God disciplines his people. And so when Israel strayed from God, this is what we see happening. Look at verses 14 and 15. Israel bows down to the Baals. Verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled then against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies so they couldn't withstand their enemies and whenever they marched out the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord warned and as the Lord had sworn to them the Lord was not going to let his people go but the first thing he had to do in pursuing them was discipline them and this is exactly what we see in Hebrews where the writer says this do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord no be nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Receives. If you're, if you're feeling like you're going through a hard time, that you're enduring a crisis, that you've been going through a lot of pain for whatever particular reason, I mean, a question you might want to ask is this. Have you been wandering from God? Have you been strained from him? Could it be that God is calling you back to himself through the difficulties that you have been experiencing? Could it be that he's not abandoned you, but actually the trouble is a sign of his love for you? Because he wants you back. Here's what C.S. Lewis said, very famous 
quote, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I want to be very clear. I know many of you are going through hard times. I don't want you to, to make you think that because you're going through a hard time, it means you're strained. I'm not saying that. I'm asking you, though, to ask the question, have I been strained? Have I been strained? And could that be a reason for the pain I've been going through? The second thing, though, that we see here is God pursues through deliverance. He pursues through deliverance. End of verse 15, people are distressed, it says. They're in terrible distress. And now we begin to see something really wonderful happen in the Israelites. That is, they become sorrowful, they become humbled, they become broken. And so in verse 15, it says, very end of verse, excuse me, verse of end of verse 18. Look what it says at the very end, end of verse 18. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. They were groaning. They were crying out to God. Now, you know, whether that groaning was really sincere or not, I, I guess we don't know, but one thing is for sure. God heard that groaning. And what verse 18 tells us is that his response was not to say, didn't I tell you this would happen? His response wasn't to say, you deserve everything you're getting, Israel, my people. His response was to be moved with pity. I mean, isn't that one of the sweetest verses in the scriptures? Moved to pity by their groaning. Jay Gresham Machen, famous Presbyterian theologian, said this, Christianity is the religion of the broken heart. I mean, that's what God desires in his people. A broken heart over your sin, over your wandering, over your strain. Psalm 51 says the same thing. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The principle, really, I think that kind of sums up um, this book is this. God extends mercy when we need it most and when we deserve it least. That's the gospel. He extends mercy when we need it most and when we deserve it least. So how does God respond to this? The people, they're grown, they cry out. And then it says in verse 16, here's what God does. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And then um, verse 18 also, whenever God... Lord raised up judges for them. The Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hands of their enemies. So now finally we get to judges. What, what are these judges? These, these judges are not like Supreme Court judges you know, that we have today. Don't think of them that way. Very different. The judges were more like military leaders, really. And they would come in and they would deliver the people. They would save them from their enemies and from these plunderers. And very often what God sent in the judges were very kind of peculiar people, like in chapter 3, a guy named Ehud, who they, the text says is a left-handed man. <laughs> it's like, well, why do we hear about that? Well, it's because to be left-handed was a sign of weakness. If you're left-handed, don't take that personally. That, that was just in the Old Testament, the way left-handedness was conceived. He raises up a Deborah, a, a, a woman, you know, an unlikely person to be a military 
commander and deliverer. He raises up a person named Gideon who's scared to death. He raises up a person named Samson who's a sexually immoral thug. (laughs) I mean, all of these strange people that God raises up, these unpredictable people, and we just see this wonderful principle coming through that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. He shows his power through our weakness and he delivers in the most unexpected and unanticipated ways. And that points us to the cross um, more than anything else. But, but here, here is the big problem. God would raise up these judges, the judges would deliver, but verse 19, look what it says. In verse 19, whenever the judge died, They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They didn't drop their practices of their stubborn ways. And they fall right back into it. The judge dies and they fall right back into their sinful patterns. And so here's a little chart that shows you that this is what judges is all about. Israel serves the Lord, top of the circle. They fall into idolatry. They become enslaved. They cry out to the Lord, God raises up a judge, Israel is delivered, then Israel begins to serve the Lord and times are good again, and then they fall into idolatry and they become enslaved and round and round and round it goes. Twelve judges are raised up in the book of Judges and the same thing happens every time. And here's what we learn from this. When a judge died, he didn't or she didn't any longer have the ability to save or help the people of Israel. That person would be incapacitated. The person was dead. What could the person do? The person died making their act of deliverance ultimately insufficient. And what we see is that even though God sent these judges, they were unable to deal with the fundamental problem, which was the sinfulness in Israel's hearts. These judges could do nothing about Israel's sin. They could do nothing about Israel's rebellion, nothing about Israel's idolatry and faithlessness. They came, they were sent, they saved temporarily, but they were insufficient. And as we read this, our hearts should long for a better deliverer. Another deliverer is gonna come. It's not Ahud or Deborah or Gideon or Jephthah or any of these other people. It's Jesus. Finally, the deliverer named Jesus comes. And you know what? Jesus dies too. He dies, but through his death, he atones for our sin. He turns away the wrath of God. He secures your pardon His death is very different than the death of the judges. And the best thing of all is that he doesn't stay dead. And he raises up, rises up uh, out of the tomb. And now he is alive today. And the scriptures tell us that he is interceding for us constantly. He's helping us now. These judges couldn't help. Jesus can. Because he is alive. He is our advocate before the Father. As he was resurrected from the dead, he poured out his Holy Spirit into us so that our hearts would 
continue to love and follow and would not finally and ultimately turn away, although sometimes we might wander, the Spirit ensures that we will not finally or ultimately turn away. And we hear the words of Jesus when he says, nobody is going to snatch my people out of my hand. This is what Judges points to. A deliverer finally who's going to get the job done. Who's going to take care of the sin problem. Who's going to be faithful to us to the end. Do you know this Jesus? Is he your savior? Is he your deliverer? Turn to him in faith. Turn to him and receive him. And I assure you that he will respond to you not in judgment but in pity. He will respond to you in mercy. He will cover your sin. And he will prove himself to be mighty to save. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are mighty to save. That your salvation has been demonstrated over and over again in your word. And fully and completely in the giving of your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.